Welcome to this special inauguration day episode of That's So Hindu. Um, I'm Matt McDermott, show producer. I'm here with Tanyel Kushakshin, our director of public policy here at HAF, and Samira Kalra, managing director of HAF. Um, we just wanted to go over some of the priorities for the Biden-Harris administration from the Hindu American perspective. And uh, let's just jump right into it. Tanyel, can you just give us an overview of what you see as the priorities? Uh, what can people look out for? Well, well, first, uh, it's important for the uh, Hindu American community to know uh, what kind of landscape we're looking at when you're looking at Congress. You're looking at a very uh, closely divided Congress, uh, Democrats and uh, Republicans with a very slim majority for Democrats in the House and a literally 50-50 tie uh, with Kamala Harris, the uh, vice president and president of the Senate, casting that tie-breaking vote. So, uh, and not every vote in the Senate is a simple majority. Some of those are, are two-thirds. So, it's it, it, you know, they Passing legislation isn't going to be still as, as easy as some some people think. At the same time, um, you have some very uh, steady hands, and what I mean by that is people who have served in government for many many years, uh, coming back into the fold from the Clinton world, from the Obama world, uh, returning uh, to the administration. You see that with uh, key appointments, uh, and uh, you, so there's there's a lot more of a maturity when it comes to this administration and dealing with Congress because. The president, uh, Joe Biden, served in the Senate for nearly 40 years um, and four decades of experience. Uh, you know, he's learned a lot about about Congress. And so um, you're going to see uh, a new dynamic take shape in Washington. And as far as Hindu American issues are concerned, uh, you know, the, the things that are going to be at the top of the list um, that really were at the top of the list last year uh, is going to be green card reform. Uh, we worked very hard on that legislation last year with our uh, partners across the United States. And uh, that's something that um, the, the Biden-Harris administration immigration reform uh, in general uh, is, uh, is a key priority for. Uh, so that's that's one. And uh, I'll, I'll let uh, Samir talk a little bit more about some, some of the other issues um, in, in particular, but uh, we have a new dynamic uh, in Washington, and I think people are starting to feel that already. Sure, yeah, absolutely. And I think as Tenniel alluded to, one of the major issues on the immigration front and domestic policy specifically is uh, the green card reform. Now, the incoming administration has already released a number of executive orders um, that they plan to execute in the first several days of um, their administration. And there were some immigration ones there. Um, one was the repeal of the travel ban um, on countries, uh, Muslim majority countries, some that have been identified as uh, posing national security threats. The other is uh, DACA. Um, we haven't seen anything yet to indicate where the administration stands on the issue of green card reform and helping to clear the backlog that has particularly impacted the Hindu American community. Um, we hope that becomes a priority in the administration. Uh, from a legislative perspective, um, given that it is so closely divided, um, we don't know how that's going to be able to progress through Congress um, and the Senate. Um, now, the good thing is, is that green card reform as a piecemeal piece of legislation has received unanimous bipartisan support in the past. So that does um, you know, uh, give us some hope that we can get something done in the next few years. Um, we know that on the domestic front as well, hate crimes is going to be a major issue for the community, uh, making sure that there's funding into um, training and um, tracking of hate crimes with our federal agencies, um, as well as at the local and state levels. Um, and on the foreign policy front, um, I think some of the major issues that we're looking at are a continuation, hopefully, of the strong U.S.-India partnership. India, as many people know, is a very complicated um, on-the-ground situation. And so you're making sure the administration understands <clears throat> the realities there, you know, that India is a secular democracy, um, that there is, you know, a uh, inherent pluralism and pluralistic ethos there, that, of course, there are. Um, issues of concern that do occur, but by and large, minorities are given tremendous uh, rights and accommodations under Indian law. Now, when there are issues that are human rights violations, they certainly need to be addressed, but they should be looked at within the broader context of the Indian environment and what's happening there and all the positives that are 
provided for minorities and Indian citizens more broadly. Um, and also getting a better understanding of what India's um, moves have been recently in the former state of Jammu and Kashmir, and some of the legislation that the Indian government, central Indian government has passed. So that's kind of where we're looking at in terms of the US-India partnership. There is, of course, um, by extension, regional stability um, in South Asia, which um, looks at terrorism in Pakistan, um, Afghanistan, and some of the surrounding neighborhood. Now, what is a little bit of concern is that the incoming uh, Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, during the nomination process did express an interest to strengthen U.S.-Pakistan military ties. We hope that does not come at the expense of human rights and religious freedom on the ground in Pakistan. And that also does not allow Pakistan to divert funds towards uh, fomenting terrorism and instability in the region, both um, northward towards um, Afghanistan, as well as towards um, India. Um, and so regional stability and terrorism are going to be major issues of concern um, as well for the community. And finally, human rights of religious minorities in both South Asia and beyond. So making that an emphasis of this administration, the countries that are violating human rights, not just of Hindu minorities, but other minorities are held accountable uh, for their uh, violations of human rights and religious freedom. And if they are found to be committing uh, human rights violations, that that accountability is backed up by some, uh, some teeth in enforcement, such as sanctions. So for instance, Pakistan was recently designated as a country of particular concern for egregious human rights violations. The next step is to make sure that there are U.S. sanctions on Pakistan, which is allowed under the International Religious Freedom Act, to make sure that you can enforce that country of particular concern designation. So kind of from a broad perspective, it's the human rights in several countries in South Asia and beyond, um, ensuring there's accountability and um, uh, you know enforcement um, and creating uh, conditions on the ground for Hindus to be able to live a basic life of dignity and self-respect in some of these countries, such as Pakistan, Bangladesh, Malaysia, um, and beyond. So if we can just back up one second. Um, both of you have mentioned green card reform and immigration reform, but we, there are listeners to this podcast in a number of countries throughout every continent on the planet, believe it or not. And for people that aren't familiar with the issue, can you just nutshell it for us? What, what is the issue and what what are we asking for? What's HAF asking for? Sure. So I think um, when we're looking at green card reform, <clears throat> Uh, the U.S. allows a certain number of people to apply for um, H-1B visas, which are high-skilled visas uh, for people that are working as in the healthcare system, as doctors, nurses, people that are working in the tech industry. And uh, while a number of H-1B visas have been administered here in the U.S. on H-1B visas, uh, a large percentage of which are from India, the process of going from a H-1B visa to getting a more permanent residency status within the United States, which is called a green card, is a very clogged process because there are country caps. Um, so each country is allowed a certain number of people to get green cards. And it's not based on a first come first serve basis, meaning who has been in the line first, um, but is based on just these flat caps. It also doesn't take into account where there are more people coming from certain countries than others. So countries like India, for instance, and people coming applicants from India are stuck in this long line because they have a larger number of H-1B visas um, as opposed to the number of available green cards for applicants from India. So it's disproportionate in terms of how they're able to move through this process and go from H-1B visa status to uh, permanent residency status. And the practical impact of that is is that people are waiting decades to, to get that permanent legal status, which is impacting their family status in this country. Their children could actually age out of their um, temporary visa status before the parents are able to get green cards, which makes their um, stay within the US uncertain in the future. Um, it, in, it inhibits the ability of people to actually move from job to job because they're dependent on the H-1B visa from a specific company sponsoring them. 
Um, it impacts, you know, how they're able to actually um, participate and engage in the U.S. system more broadly. And so this process is, you know, something that has been broken for a number of years. India is not the only country that's uh, suffering from this, but it is one of the primary applicants from India are some of the primary victims of this but is just also symbolic of a broken immigration system that just needs to be addressed and needs to be fixed to streamline this process from these temporary visas to this more permanent green card status. Danielle, so what can people expect in the new incoming Congress um, and the changes both in what party controls Congress and you know who's coming into the different caucus chair positions and so forth? Thanks, Matt. Yeah, so when you look at uh, Congress now, you have... Uh, Democratic majority of about 222 seats and the majority, uh, you need only need a 218 majority. Uh, so Democrats have about four, uh, a four seat majority, which is pretty slim, uh, considering there are 435 members of Congress. So, uh, it's, it's really razor, razor thin in, in, in the house. Uh, that being said, uh, you know, in the Senate, you have a split 50, 50, um, and uh, Chuck Schumer from New York, the senator, uh, for the first time in his 40-year career, uh, is now going to become Senate Majority Leader. Uh, former uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, is now the, the Minority Leader. Uh, and uh, they're hammering out an agreement on how to move forward uh, in the Senate on both uh, President Biden's nominees, because the first thing they have to do is fill these important, very important positions. Uh, in fact, uh, it was uh, this is the first time that uh, a Secretary of Defense is not installed when the president is inaugurated uh, on uh, January twentieth. Uh, Lloyd Austin is, has not been confirmed yet, uh, and typically these major appointments, Secretary of Defense being number one, uh, Secretary of State being number two, uh, and Treasury being number three. Uh, those appointments are usually done uh, right away. Uh, and that's actually another thing we're looking at compared to the last four years. We had a lot of uh, people in the administration who were acting secretaries uh, who weren't confirmed in the process. And so uh, there was a lot of delays uh, in the in the last as far as uh, you know things getting done. And then there is now a delay with the transition to the new administration. But um, they're going to work as fast as they can. Uh, the Secretary uh, of State nominee, Anthony Blink, uh, has been critical of India on Kashmir in the past, and that's something that's a concern for Hindu Americans. Uh, at the same time, uh, India didn't really come up in his confirmation hearing yesterday, and uh, you know, and it definitely didn't come up in a negative way. Uh, so, and typically, the ones that come up in those types of hearings are the bad actors: China, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, uh, Russia, and other. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but, uh, you know, that is his, his record and his statements uh, are a little bit concerning. But, uh, you know, we're, we're looking to see appointments across the board be filled and be filled very, very quickly. Uh, and so uh, we've heard that the Secretary of State will be confirmed at the latest by Monday. Uh, Secretary of Defense is expected to be confirmed by uh, tomorrow on Thursday. Uh, uh, by the time listeners uh, hear this tomorrow, they may be uh, in the middle of those confirmation hearings. Uh, so these seats are going to be filled very quickly. Um, and there are some good ones uh, and there are some uh, cause for concern. As far as foreign policy, uh, you know, there was uh, a couple of good appointments are important uh, for Hindu Americans and that are, um, you know, it's good for Hindu Americans to know who these, these, these characters are in the administration because that they really uh, is symbolic of where, what direction the, the administration uh, may take certain policy, uh, uh, in particular, uh, the Indo-Pacific. So you're looking at uh, Simona Guha and the National Security Council. She comes from the Albright Stonebridge Group, uh, which is a prominent uh, business consulting and, and advocacy uh, group in, uh, in all around the world, multinational, uh, founded by former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, uh, former Clinton Secretary of State. So, like I said, you have a lot of these familiar faces and familiar names and players, um, and someone who's very pro-India, and that group uh, did a lot of work uh, in developing U.S.-India relations. So you have, you know, a very positive person uh, in that uh, National Security Council, which is a, a prominent position. Uh, you have uh, you have another person uh, from uh, the uh, Center for uh, a New American uh, Security that is coming in uh, to the uh, National Security Council as well, 
uh, and his name is Kirk Campbell, and he was uh, a former, uh, he was the chairman of, of the board of directors uh, of CNS, and that's a, a center-right, actually, uh, organization uh, and foreign policy think tank. And so, um, and he worked on uh, issues in, in Asia. So you have a lot of uh, pro-India people coming in there and, and a few uh, a few causes for concern. Looking at Congress, uh, the, the new uh, incoming chair uh, or caucus co-chairs for the India caucus in the House uh, will be uh, Brad Sherman once again for the Democrats uh, and the Republican George Holding from North Carolina from last Congress retired. Uh, so the new Republican co-chair of the India caucus is Congressman Steve Chabot from, uh, from Ohio. Republican from Ohio uh, will be the, be the chair. And for the first time, there is now a vice chair position was created uh, and Congressman Ro Khanna from California uh, will be the vice chair of the India caucus in the new 117th Congress. Set aside, you have the same India caucus co-chairs. Uh, John Cornyn, Senator Cornyn from Texas, Republican, uh, was reelected in this last election, uh, as was his caucus co-chair, uh, Democratic colleague from Virginia, uh, Senator uh, Mark Warner, uh, who was reelected as well in this last election. So uh, familiar faces in the Senate side, uh, very strong caucus there. Uh, we have some new players in, in, in the House. Uh, the Republicans actually gained seats uh, from this last election, even though they technically lost the Senate. Uh, they gained seats in the House. Uh, so 14, or about 14 seats flipped from Democrat to Republican in the last election, uh, which is something Republicans should, should have been uh, proud about. Um, but, you know, those types of headlines are hard to come by these days. Uh, and so uh, you're looking at uh, a new dynamic in Washington. Uh, you're looking at a new administration that's going to move as fast as possible on COVID stimulus, uh, and uh, then we'll, we'll, that we'll be filling positions uh, very, very quickly uh, in, in the near future. And you're going to see uh, uh, so a lot more stability when it comes to uh, government functioning and administration uh, of, uh, of the executive branch. Yeah, sorry. I just wanted to just mention one quick appointment that we're also looking and have been pushing for is within the State Department, the Office of Relig International Religious Freedom and the Ambassador for International Religious Freedom. That is currently vacant um, and was previously occupied by Ambassador Sam Brownback um, that had accomplished quite a bit in helping to further international religious freedom and somebody that we worked with through the International Religious Freedom Roundtable. So we're hoping that that position is filled as well. Um, and it's something that we are actively advocating for, along with the coalition of religious freedom groups. You just touched on something, anticipating my question. It, what about USERF? HAF has had points of contention with USERF, the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom in the past. And what do you expect? Do you see any changes, Some similar tone they'll be taking? I would say big picture, I think we're going to continue to see um, some things that we like that USERF is doing and other things that we don't agree with. Um, and I think mainly the areas we have seen with Pakistan has been consistently good and positive. Um, you know, we hope that they would, you know, give more recognition to the human rights violations that are occurring and religious freedom violations that are occurring in Bangladesh and Malaysia. Um, and those countries are given more attention. Um, and I think where we don't agree with them completely is in their assessment of India. Um, and I do expect that to continue in terms of the disagreement because a lot of their sources of information um, that HEF has reported on in the past have been faulty and have been flawed. Um, a lot of their assessments of on the on the ground realities or interpretations of different policies and rules have been flawed and inaccurate. Um, and so that has been problematic. <clears throat> We've also seen you know, the last administration, the appointment of so several far right evangelicals, um, which, um, you know, I think was obviously for international religious freedom, somewhat ironic where you have, you know, um, you know, certain groups of people that have been pushing for a very exclusivist interpretation of religion. Um, and, you know, they're now telling the world uh, about religious freedom. So I think it also, you know, um, was a problem for U.S. credibility in terms of who was serving um, on that uh, on the commission. So if you know, I'm not sure exactly when the appointments are going to be changing uh, for that tenure, maybe able to fill that in. But hopefully, we'll see more balanced um, representation on the commission going forward, um, rather than kind of this very select or this group that's dominated by evangelicals. 
Tendale, thoughts on USERF? Sure, a couple of things. Um, you know, USERF has done um, good work in, in certain areas. As, as Samir said, you know, they held this really important hearing on blasphemy laws uh, at the close of the last Congress. Um, and we submitted a, uh, and they accepted uh, from HAF a statement, uh, a testimony for the record. Um, and that's a good thing. And so, um, you know, they, they, list, they, they are listening to us and that's, uh, we, we have their attention. Uh, so to speak, as far as the Hindu American communities is, is concerned. And so I, I'd like uh, members of the community to, to, to know that um, and that we do communicate with them. Um, and, and at the same time, uh, you know, sometimes uh, they, they take steps that we uh, disagree with. Uh, for instance, uh, in the last Congress, uh, they uh, included India on their recommendation list for countries of particular concern. And we're talking about countries like China, Russia, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, country Iran, countries with a, a, atrocious human rights violations, communist states uh, that are committing genocide. And to put India in that same category is absolutely absurd. And uh, the, for the Hindu American community uh, will be strongly advocating uh, to make sure that uh, India is not included uh, as a CPC and that uh, the broader uh, administration uh, members of, of Congress and and USERF, uh and specifically have a better understanding uh, of what India uh, is and and what uh, India promises uh, as the largest democracy uh, in the world uh, for the future and for the future of the free world. The anti-India sentiment that sometimes comes out of USERF and what you alluded to. Can you speculate uh, on what what we're likely to see in terms of? Things that we saw, you know, in the last couple of years at the state level, I realize this goes beyond Congress and specifically the Biden-Harris administration. But what do you what do you see as the future of some of these resolutions that we've seen passed at the city level saying against the CAA, the Citizenship Amendment Act and similar things? Are we likely to, likely to see any change in that? Sure. And real quick, I'm going I'm to pass that off to Samir, but I want to say a couple of last minute things about USERF. You know, the chair, sure. uh, the chair of USERF is uh, Gail Manchin, uh, a very bright lady, uh, does good work, uh, hardworking. Uh, she's the wife of Senator uh, Joe Manchin, the um, conservative Democrat from, from West Virginia. Um, uh, so you have a lot of people that have been in, in, in circles and in this government. For those of you who don't know, um, in addition to Congress appointing commissioners to USER, the administration gets uh, a, gets an appointment, I think two appointments as well. Uh, so uh, it, the commission itself is made up of people who are selected by Democrats and Republicans in Congress and by the, the administration as well. And so uh, I just want other people to have a better understanding of what USERF is. And, you know, as the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, uh, a quasi-governmental body that's not uh, really an elected body, uh, but appointed by those uh, those those players. Uh, and But they do make policy recommendations in our well-respected on Capitol Hill and, and were created uh, by an act of Congress many years ago. And, you know, it's not like they're going anywhere. <laughs> so, uh, you know. Yeah, and their recommendations are... Are, are they taken up by the State Department a whole cloth or how, just explain that that relation to people? No, no, it's not like it, if they make a recommendation that the State Department automatically accepts that and that becomes law. No, that's not how it works. They, they work um, kind of like a committee in Congress, but not really a committee. It's a, it's technically called a commission. So uh, imagine if there was an international religious freedom committee in Congress, sort of like there's a transportation committee or a foreign affairs committee. Uh, they make policy recommendations uh, and that uh, to the to the both members of Congress and to uh, the administration. Just so we want to make sure that our listeners have a full understanding of, of the body and, and its makeup. Yeah, great. Samir, so, so to pivot back, Anti-CAA resolutions, general sentiment. Um, are we likely to see much of a change in that? And how do you feel like the Biden-Harris administration will or will not, you know, change that tone? You know, I think we will continue to see that to some extent at the local and state levels. Um, primarily, local city councils is where we've seen it. Um, I don't anticipate much change there because I think the groups that are pushing for those types of resolutions um, are going to continue to do so irregardless of who's in power at the uh, federal level. Now, that being said, whether that has any actual impact on policy at the federal level is another matter. Um, you know, we're hoping that the, 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 the kind of general policy stances stay, you know, the same and these don't have much impact, rather, uh, you know, except a little bit of, you know, noise on the periphery. 
Um, but you know, you never know because if it creates enough momentum and these groups are pushing, you know, in Congress for more types of resolutions, letters, and are actually making inroads in terms of actual State Department policy, then we're getting into a problem. Then we have, you know, um, a little bit of a, a bigger challenge there. Um, I think, you know, as as Tenniel alluded to, that a couple of the appointments that are particularly on the foreign policy side are a little bit concerning in terms of how they may view some of these issues that are taking place in India. Um, I, you know, we're hoping that the relationship is mature enough to withstand some of these concerns. Um, I do think, though, we'll see, continue to see some of these anti-India initiatives that unfortunately veer into Hindu phobia. Right? It's not just these are purely. Uh, foreign policy issues. These are issues that are depicting one particular community in a certain way and is impacting the lives of Hindu Americans because it, it affects how we are viewed by our neighbors, by our coworkers, by our representatives at the local level. And so it has a real impact here domestically, even if it doesn't change foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis India. And that's why they're concerning. And that's why I think the community has really been um, in up in arms about you know the spread of these resolutions and anticipates more of it happening um, into the into the um, next couple of years. So in the incoming administration, there are a number of Indian Americans in high profile positions. Um, some high profile from an administration perspective, not always in the public eye. Some of those are Hindu, some are, aren't. What do you think that means? for representation of the community more broadly. Yeah, you know, you know, I can start maybe with a big picture and then Tanya, if you want to jump in in terms of some of the specific um, appointees and what we can expect from them, if, you know, if anything. I think it's, it's almost a coming of age in terms of the community. Um, you know, to be fair, we did see some high level appointees in the prior administration as well. And then going back to the Obama administration, but I think the number that we're seeing now, I think shows that the community is coming of age in terms of its um, not just engagement in uh, broader American society, but specifically in serving in these bureaucratic positions um, and in many cases, high level positions that have a great deal of importance um, and responsibility. <clears throat> and so I think it, it sends a clear message that the Hindu American and broader Indian American community um, matters, um, that there's no real bar in terms of, you know, the areas that we can and can't get into, um, you know, in terms of, you know, aspirationally. And I, it, you know, you always, when you see Indian Americans and Hindu Americans high level positions, it always is a positive, has a positive ripple effect in terms of the younger generation and seeing what those, different career paths may be, right? When I was growing up, it was primarily, you know, doctors, lawyers, engineers, you know, business owner, et cetera. But now you're seeing this widening out and serving in, you know, our administration in particular, um, I think is a real positive, you know, in terms of inspiring, you know, uh, Hindu Americans to continue to serve and continue to lead. Now, hopefully they will be inspired in terms of, you know, their positions. And I don't mean necessarily that, they're going to just focus on Hindu American issues or Hindu issues, obviously, but their Hindu values will come to the fore. Um, and that, you know, some of the, um, you know, inspiration to serve, um, you know, seva, selfless service um, comes out in how they um, execute their positions and responsibilities. Looking at some of the more domestic issues, such as civil rights, the Department of Justice, um, and the, uh, uh, you have uh, the Nia Gupta, uh, who was in uh, the, the previous Obama uh, Biden administration went and has been the chair of the leadership conference on civil and human rights in DC uh, for the last uh, four years and uh, is now going to return to the Department of Justice uh, in, in the civil rights division. Uh, and there are a couple of other important uh, key uh, legal appointments in the Department of Justice as well. Uh, I think that's very important. Uh, I think you're going to start to see more uh, of diversity in the administration and, and in people who are tapped for these uh, appointments uh, all the way from, from, from the top of the chain all the way down. And you're starting to see uh, some really great appointments of, of folks coming in from, from all walks, uh, from all different parts of, uh, of the country uh, who are Hindu American, uh, who, who are Indian American coming into the administration um, from uh, at all different levels, from from the healthcare field, uh, from the uh, from the legal profession, um, and, we're, and I think we're going to start to see more of that, uh, just like we did um, in previous Democratic administrations. Everything we've talked about so far has been forward-looking. 
if we could just take a few minutes here and look back just a week ago, the Capitol was stormed, broken into, call it whatever you whatever you like. And at the root of that, at least part of the people there were white supremacists. Some of them were, I think it's fair to call Christian supremacists. And I don't want to present this as a whataboutism or create a false equivalency. But earlier, last June, we saw a culmination of pent-up frustration around lack of action over police, policing of communities of color, of African-Americans, and killing African-Americans at a disproportionate rate. How can we move on from from these and somehow create a sense of community again. We see sides pit against each other in a way that can seem insurmountable. How do we get past this? How can we move forward? So I think the first thing to acknowledge is, I mean, what happened was, um, you know, absolutely unprecedented. I mean, I think the last time you had something like that occur was in the 1800s. And so, you know, to see that happening live on TV almost, I think was just very disturbing at a American level and just, you know, where we are at, at the stage of our democracy here. Um, And, you know, I think there should be no equivalencies drawn between that and other events. What that happened, what happened there should be dealt with as a separate um, event and should be condemned in the strongest terms. Um, I think though it is reflective of two Americas almost that have been kind of happening for a number of years now where people are just getting their own versions of news. They're getting their own versions of social media messages that are kind of living in these echo chambers that are not talking to each other that just, you know, have their own version of reality. Um, and I, we see this on the left as well. Um, you know, we saw, you know, which was a very important movement for racial justice and equality last year be hijacked in some places by, you know, extremists on the left, that their only goal was to create anarchy and the destruction of property um, and, you know, violence, and which was completely unacceptable as well. And it's unfortunate because, the very real issues that the African-American community has been dealing with almost got, became like an afterthought because the focus was on some of the riots and some of the violence. Um, and so we see this kind of on the fringes of, of, of both sides and just very you know, antagonistic. There's no common sense, you know, common agreement on what it means to be American anymore. I think there's just two different visions of America. There's two different versions of what is reality um, in America today. And if we don't kind of bridge that gap and that divide, I think it's going to be very difficult um, to move forward as a country. I think what we can, we should want to see from this administration, at least, and just in general, is there shouldn't be political retribution. There shouldn't be, okay, because what happened at the Capitol now, you know, like we've seen in other countries around the world, when we see the, the transition of power and, you know, the left comes into power or the right comes to power, they basically go on witch hunts against the other side. I mean, if we see that, we're going to get sucked into a vicious cycle of, you know, uh, retribution. And it's just going to be a matter of time before the right comes back to power. And we can see the exact same thing. I mean, we have to just look back into history into McCarthyism, right? Um, you know, where there was kind of this right wing witch hunts. And, you know, we're seeing it now where this kind of extreme left rhetoric is, you know, kind of taken over to some extent in certain spheres as well. And so I think we need to kind of get away from this idea that's got to be this tit for tat, depending on who's in power. I think that's the first step um, in order to kind of move forward as a country. And there needs to be some almost common agreement on, you know, what it is as we, that we want as a country and where what we agree on is being democratic, uh, sorry, democracy, uh, secular values, um, what are our kind of our basic principles and get back to those and still have disagreements on policy and the best way to achieve it. But there needs to be some common sense of decency again. Daniel? What happened at the Capitol was shocking, disgusting. It made people angry. It was uh, a very low point for American and American democracy. And the rest of the world was watching. Uh, you had tweets from um, the Supreme Leader of Iran, uh, you had, you know, offering, you know, to help. <laughs> you had 
Turkey, the Turkey offered uh, support to, to to help the Americans get along, uh, to, to be a peacemaker. Um, I mean, these are the, these are the images that were broadcast around the world, and 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 to to not you know acknowledge that you know America's image took a hit internationally, you know, would be foolish. We have to acknowledge that, um, and we need to fix it. And, and I think some things that Samir talked about um, are going to happen. You know, Joe Biden is in, isn't a vengeful person. He's not. Um, he, he goes to church regularly. Uh, he is, uh, you know, forgiveness is, is something uh, that, that, that that is you know very uh, dear to him. And uh, and it's getting past disagreements and working together, cutting deals. I mean, that's that's who he is, and that you're going to see people uh, that sort of approach reflected in the people that he selects and and how his administration governs. Now, there are procedural requirements. You know, the House impeached. Donald Trump, which means that those articles and impeachments are by constitutional uh, requirements sent over to the Senate and the Senate must hear them. Uh, and Mitch McConnell uh, and Chuck Schumer, the now uh, Senate Majority Leader, are working out an agreement where they will have their impeachment trial uh, in the Senate and, and how that's going to work out. So we're going to see how that works out because that's coming um, and, and that's not going to go away. Uh, and you're going to Really see, I think, in my opinion, and you're starting to see this already in the in the Republican side, uh, is a fight for the soul of the Republican Party. Uh, Liz Cheney, the number three Republican in the House, voted to impeach Trump, uh, and because of that, nine other Republicans in the House Republican Conference felt comfortable. Uh, she gave, kind of gave them cover to come out and vote for impeachment, uh, and uh, we had. We hope the number was was larger, but it was only 10 Republicans in the House, uh, whereas you had 140 Republicans in the House object to the uh, election results. Uh, Trumpism is not going to go away. Uh, Donald Trump has talked about starting his own media company, his own political party. Um, you know, there are Trump people throughout the Republican Party in place still now. Uh, there are Trump people elected to Congress uh, still now. And uh, they were going to see uh, some of that shake out. Uh, and that is going to manifest itself and, and, and could manifest itself uh, in some really uh, interesting ways. Uh, but I don't think you're going to see, um, you know, the, the, the pushback from the Biden administration. Uh, but I think it's important uh, for American democracy, for the world, that there is accountability and that people who are involved are, are held accountable and that they're prosecuted. And uh, to the fullest extent of the law, and I'm not talking just about, you know, trespassing and violating property. I'm talking about treason. <laughs> I'm talking about uh, sedition. Uh, it, you know, this, these are serious, serious crimes um, that were committed uh, against the Constitution. And, and to think that these, uh, uh, that, that, that these people uh, were anything uh, uh, but uh, domestic terrorists uh, was, was, were, is, is, again, uh, you know, contrary to, uh, to, to, to reality. And you had from a civil rights perspective, as you were talking about, Matt, the Anti-Defamation League uh, called for the, the withdrawal, the resignation of the president of the United States. The ADL has never in its history ever done that, called for the resignation. The National Association of Manufacturers called for, uh, you know, uh, condemn the president. I mean, you had groups coming out that were, you know, groups like ADL that are involved in civil rights. And then you had groups like you know, corporations and businesses say, what is going on here? This has to stop and it's going to stop. Um, but uh, there are certain elements that need to be addressed that need to be acknowledged. Um, and, and and quite frankly, in, in some aspects need to be rooted out uh, of political uh, infrastructure because uh, they're, they are a domestic threat uh, to the constitution and, and, and the, the oath that, that members of Congress and the president takes is to defend uh, the, the constitution from all enemies foreign and domestic. Yeah, if I could just maybe add a couple of things there. So two things, um, I think Tanya brought up some excellent points about accountability. I think at the same time, we need to be careful not to throw out the baby with the bathwater and not unnecessarily, you know, um, blank, put out blanket statements about all Republicans, all people that are, you know, conservative in terms of their outlook are, are somehow culpable or responsible for this. Um, I think we need to definitely look at who was specifically involved in both in you know the actual incidents as well as inciting them to those incidents and the accountability needs to lie with them but I think the more we try to blanket may you know blame the entire Republican party or all supporters of Republicans or anybody that's ever said something positive about Trump I think is where we get into dangerous 
waters. Um, the other thing I think the events of the you know last couple of weeks have actually somewhat hid is that you know even on the democratic side there's going to be a reckoning too within the party as well we saw that a little bit after the election that there's quite a bit of bickering between the more moderate faction within the party and the far left of the party and you know a lot of that got papered over because the main opposition was trump well now trump is going to be gone but now you have to govern um, and so I think we're going to have to see how Democrats and, um, you know, the party itself works out some of those differences between the, you know, uh, further left uh, sections of the party and those that are more moderates and see how that plays out, especially with such a closely, um, you know, uh, divided um, House and Senate, right? While they have majorities, it's such a narrow uh, uh, majority that we're going to see some of these divisions play out even within the Democratic Party, I think. So I think that's something else that's going to um, be interesting to watch over the next couple of years. <clears throat> and finally, I think the other thing I would say is that just, you know, about speech. Um, I think it's freedom of speech has kind of really come into the limelight recently, and we have to have some important discussions as a country about those principles, especially vis-a-vis -vis social media. Um, and how can that be regulated effectively, but at the same time while still, you know, respecting uh, the basic principles of freedom of speech. So, you know, these are going to be difficult conversations and debates that are going to take place, but that are necessary. Um, and we're going to have to see that, um, you know, we um, are able to evolve, you know, how we look at social media because, you know, obviously it's a very different beast than we had anticipated or that the founding fathers had anticipated when they did come up with First Amendment protections. One final question. In a couple months, important anniversary of the genocide in Bangladesh is coming up. What would you like to see from the Biden-Harris administration, if anything, in recognition of that? You know, I'll start. And then I think Tanya will have a very important perspective, I think, as somebody who has a family that's been a survivor of the Armenian genocide. Um, but, you know, I think from, the, from my perspective, I think what's going to be very important is, number one, some type of official recognition that the genocide did take place and that it was not just a genocide against ethnic Bengalis, but particularly under international law, there was an intent to exterminate um, in whole or in part the Hindu population of Bangladesh. Um, and there, that you know, was followed up by actual actions that drove out approximately 10 million, um, mainly Hindus uh, into India that led to the rape of 200 to 400,000 um, women, a large majority of which were uh, Hindus again, and that resulted in the deaths of two to three million um, uh, people, again, a larger majority of which were Hindus. So artificial recognition, on the one hand, I think we also have, we want to see that the Biden-Harris administration is looking at Bangladesh um, in, a, in an attempt to support um, an important strategic partner, um, but supporting secular free uh, democracy there making sure that the Bangladeshi government is confronting radicalism there because some of the groups that were responsible for um, some of the genocide are still active in Bangladesh today <clears throat> and are significant um, power brokers such as Jamaat-e-Islami. And so making sure that US policy today recognizes what's happened in the past, but also how to deal effectively with Bangladesh both um, economically, as well as on issues of human rights and religious freedom and countering extremism and radicalism. Thanks uh, for that question. You know, this is uh, the 50th anniversary. Um, you, you're talking about a remote part of the world that quite frankly, most Americans don't know about, that don't know where it is, couldn't spot it on the map. Um, and so awareness is gonna be front and center with uh, the work that uh, the Hindu American community does and the HAF is going to do in the uh, months ahead when it comes to raising awareness of uh, the Hindu genocide in Bangladesh. And as Samir said, um, you know, I'm not Hindu, I'm uh, Christian Armenian descendant of, of genocide survivors uh, from the 1915 World War I genocide. And, uh, you know, I fought for genocide recognition for the Armenian American community for, for, for my ancestors. Uh, and that's something that we uh, finally achieved uh, in the, with the U.S. government this, uh, in the last two years. Uh, quite, quite an achievement, having worked on that issue for over a decade uh, and now working on Hindu-American issues and, and fighting for recognition of the Hindu genocide is uh, something that I, uh, that I take uh, personally and 
that's something that I, I want to raise as much awareness about because people don't know about it so much. So in addition to the official recognition, uh, we want to raise public awareness uh, about this uh, uh, about the genocide and, and what happened and why uh, and why it's important to to remember because those things are still taking place uh, in Bangladesh today. Uh, you know some of those aspects that evil uh, that 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 existed as I like to say um, still does exist today. Uh, whether you look at Syria, uh, where where my ancestors were killed in the Syrian desert over a hundred years ago, uh, where uh, Hindus were killed. Uh, throughout South Asia, particularly uh, in, in, in West Bengal, uh, 50 years ago, uh, and and that uh, slow uh, process of of extermination has kind of continued today with the persecution of Hindus um, and 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 the exodus of of, of Hindus now, uh, and you're you're going to see uh, hopefully uh, more awareness uh, in in the public sphere, uh, the public square, as they say, uh, when it comes to uh, what happened 50 years ago. I know that I positioned the last question as the last one, but something popped in my mind that we didn't cover, which was what, what can we expect at the state level? Sure. Um, so I think from the Hindu American perspective, there's going to be a lot more advocacy at this state and local levels. Um, I think we've seen a natural shift and transition to the state level in general, because at the end of the day, a lot of what happens at the local and state level has a more direct impact on our everyday lives. Um, we've seen that in COVID um, most glaringly um, because a lot of the policies have been set at the state level. But that expands to a number of different issues, including things like hate crimes, hate crime policies. Um, we're seeing it around education. I mean, textbooks for years has been a local and state issue, district and state issue. Um, we're seeing bills now that are um, touching on religious freedom. Um, in California, we had dealt with a bill that gave uh, homeowners um, in homeowners association condos and renters the right to have religious symbols on their doors. Um, you know, we're dealing with, you know, how hate symbols should be talked about in curriculum. We've seen the uh, swastika bill in New York. And so a lot of these issues um, are coming up more and more at the local and state level. And I think that's also what you see as a natural maturity of the community where we are putting more emphasis on the local and state level as opposed to just, oh, Congress, everything needs to get done with Congress. Um, that knowing that it's a multi-pronged strategy. Um, and so really building out what we're doing at the local and state level. So I think we're gonna see more activities happening um, here um, at, at, at the state level, not just in places like California, but in Florida, New York, Texas, um, and really across the country where we have significant populations. Sure. Uh, and I'd like to add to that, you know, this past election cycle, um, a little known fact, we had 20 Hindu Americans run for office at the state level. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not talking about local, just the state. There's a lot more at the local level. It's actually far too many for us to, to keep track of what we're trying to. Um, but 20 ran for state legislative offices uh, and federal offices. Uh, and of those 20, uh, nine ran for state offices. Uh, and we had some uh, firsts across the board. We had um, uh, state rep Nirajantani from Ohio was elected to the state Senate now from uh, going up uh, being promoted from the state assembly to the state Senate. Uh, you had uh, Hindu American for the first time elected in New York, uh, Jennifer Rajkumar uh, in, in the state assembly. Um, and so you've had uh, you had some really great success for Hindu Americans, even having some Hindu on Hindu uh, American challenges at the local level, uh, which is interesting to see uh, in the community, uh, even at the federal level uh, as well, uh, play out. But uh, you're going to see a lot more activity uh, from an advocacy perspective uh, because, you know, government is just naturally shifting more, um, more to the states. And there are state issues that are affecting us, uh, as Samir mentioned, in California, um, you know, you have textbook issues in, in New York now. Uh, you know, there's a, a bill trying to define the swastika as a hate symbol. Um, that bill hasn't been refiled yet in the new session, uh, but we know it will be. And so we're, we're trying to, uh, we stopped it last year before it, it got too far. Uh, but, you know, we're going to be working with uh, the state legislature in New York to uh, make sure that that language uh, does not uh, harm uh, Hindu Americans, and that uh, does not uh, reflect the 
or acknowledge the ancient traditions of, of, of the swastika and uh, Hindu uh, religion. And so we're going to start to see these things and, and even at those levels of, of, of California, New York, Texas, Florida. Uh, and it's important we work on those now because the smaller states adopt what the small, uh, larger states do. And so it's very, very important. It's vital for Hindu Americans to be engaged at the local level uh, and to make sure that those, especially those communities, like I said, those those states um, set the model. Uh, and so, in my opinion, a gold standard for what, um, you know, the Hindu American community can do and for what uh, civil rights uh, legislation and, and other important issues of, of textbook and education uh, reflect uh, Hindu American uh, values and, and truth and accuracy uh, about Hinduism. Very quickly, one final thought from each of you. No, I, I want to say I want to say uh, climate. Um, climate change is one thing that is going to be a, a very very important. Uh, I think the president signed an executive order today uh, joining the Paris Climate uh, Accords, uh, and there's probably going to be a little bit of a battle in Congress over that because the Congress hasn't ratified it. But um, you know that's going to be uh, that's one thing that the administration wants to set moving forward. Um, there's legislation that was filed last year um, that's going to be refiled again on um, U.S. India energy cooperation, in particular clean energy and environmental standards, uh, and, and developing a closer bilateral U.S. India relationship on environmental policy. Uh, and there's a lot that the U.S. can learn from India uh, on on that, and, and vice versa. So um, you, you're going to start to see a, a, a sharper focus on um, the climate change, uh, environmental policy, environmental regulations uh, from this administration, and, and some of that's going to play out, like I said, in Congress vis-a-vis U.S.-India relations. Samir, pluralism. Um, I think you know, aside from the policy issues, if we're just looking at larger societal issues. I think Hinduism has something very important to offer, and that is the concept of pluralism. You know, in Hindu thought and Hindu philosophy, you know, we recognize multiple paths to the divine and this concept of pluralism where, you know, there's no exclusivist viewpoint on religion. And I think that idea of pluralism needs to be applied to politics. It needs to be applied to uh, people with opinions that you know, there need to be multiple viewpoints that are all out there in the marketplace of ideas that we look at, that people are able to get access to consider, um, as long as they're not, of course, you know, inciting to violence, um, but are different approaches to some of the same problems that we all want to solve. And so I think pluralism imbued in our politics, I think, is important, um, just as it's important within the religious sphere. And Hinduism has a a great lesson to teach in that area. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org slash donate.